brilliant. Thank you guys so much. It's great to be with you. And uh, I've got something that we're very grateful for as a family. As you know, we've been, many of you will know, been struggling with various health issues for a period. I had an ongoing test, but I had a CT scan this week, or a couple of weeks ago, which is like the whole kind of scan everything that's not moving and some things that are. And um, that's come back clear, which is great news. Thank you, God, for that. So. The consultants still aren't sure what it was I've had, but as I keep saying, I'd rather be getting better from a, a an illness that no one knows what it was and still be ill with something that people do know. I'll, I'll take that one if that's the options. Um, it's most likely it was hepatitis A, and which I've kind of just gradually recovered from, but we don't, maybe we'll never know, I don't know. Um, but we're just so grateful to God for that. And um, we're in this series at the moment, really, that comes out of what we felt God saying to us as a whole community about living life on the front line, being uh, prepared to live through trials and in this, this war. We are in a spiritual war. There is a battle going on around us and we have to be prepared as, as believers. And we've been on, on that series. We've looked at it in a number of different ways. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes you're just in those seasons, aren't you, where you think, actually, I'm, I'm standing in a mess. This is a mess right now, and I am standing in it. You know, you've had um, a death in the family, or you've had uh, a divorce, or your marriage is on the rocks, or your kids are struggling, or you're, you're, you've failed a key exam, or whatever. And you think, God, this situation, is this just me? Or sometimes you just wake up and realize, I, this is a mess right now. Um, I, I remember my, one of my worst kind of post-exam moments. I always used to, I, don't, I mean, you guys who are doing exams, I mean, kids today do so many exams, don't they? I mean, it feels like every other way, oh, I've got another exam, Dad. Oh, another exam, Dad. I mean, there's just so many exams. I'm sure the teachers must hate having to set so many exams. You're nodding. I mean, it seems insane. But I remember those post-exam moments. And my worst, one of my worst moments was as I was stood there, and we were doing the debrief, which you do after the exam, which is, can be a really joyous moment or a really terrible moment. Anyone remember those moments, the debrief afterwards? So we were in the debrief, we were talking about how it went, and we're going through the questions, and yeah, yeah, it was good, good. And then people said, well, what did you make of question eight? And all my friends were talking about, and yeah, they said, oh, that was a tough one, you about nine and, and ten. And, and I said, what question eight? And they said, you know, question, question eight. I was like, I thought there were only seven questions. No, 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 no. There was question eight, nine, and ten were on the back of the paper. And I thought to myself, pass me a bucket. I am going to throw up right now because I'd forgotten to turn the paper over and look on the back page of the paper. It was the most sinking, devastating feeling in a key exam thinking, ah, and there's nothing. I can. You want to run back in the exam hall, don't you, and grab those papers. Let me have another go. But there's nothing you can do. And you're in these situations. You think, I'm in a mess right now. We, we, over the summer, we'd gone through all this kind of disaster with our house, which I won't, I've told you before, won't bore you again with, and my health, and I was getting better. We got to the beginning of August, and we felt like, okay, we were coming through the, through the woods, and we were going down to Luton for a final blood test. And as Caroline was, was driving, because I wasn't quite up to driving at that point, she was just, she'd stopped at a junction and was turning left. And just as she was about to move off, Bam! This lorry goes into the back of our car, smashed straight in mean, the back of the car. We were, we were going on holiday later that day, and this lorry smacks into the back of the car. You know what I thought came into my head? You have got to be joking me. You have got to be having a laugh. This is ridiculous. This is crazy. I'm in a mess, and not only is the mess not getting better, it's getting worse, seemingly, on the outside. And, and sometimes we face these situations, don't we? Sometimes it's you, sometimes 
It's someone you know. This is the, the stuff of life. And this is what we face in our reality. And I want us to, to look at this as an ongoing theme. And I want, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 9. Because we all face this, no matter how old, how young, no matter what stage of life, we all face mess. And there's some seasons where we think, I, I, I'm in a mess. You're looking at me blankly. You must be on this. You, you must know what I'm talking about. Yes? Not at me if you're like, no, I know. How do we get prepared to cope with mess? How do we get prepared to live abundantly, to live, as Paul was saying, out of the goodness of God, in the place of a mess? How do we live out of that place? Because often that will define our future direction. This is a little story of Jesus with his disciples. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciple asked him, Rabbi, which is a name for teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. He was referring there to the fact that soon he was going to be crucified, taken out of the world for a season, that night would fall, literally, at that point. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and, he, and washed, and he came back seeing. I love that story. <laughs> he went and he washed, and he came back seeing. And, and the things that you, you pick up, notice in this story, the disciples Notice that, that Jesus was looking at this guy and they are, they start with a, a, what they, you can imagine in their minds thinking, this is a, this is a really spiritual question. We're going to show Jesus just how mature we have become. We're going to show Jesus just what we know about these things. Rabbi, oh rabbi, who has sinned? This man or his parents that he's, I mean, it's a really spiritual question, isn't it? Who's, who has sinned? Because us spiritual folk like to discuss spiritual things. So we know that it must be one or the other. Who has sinned in this situation? Uh, and they start with this really spiritual sounding question. Have you, have you noticed that Christians are, are some of the few people who can wrap up abuse in spiritual language. <laughs> we can hurt each other and we wrap it up in spiritual language to make it seem a bit nicer. Uh, anyone notice, notice that? We have a really bad habit of, of doing this kind of thing. I was at the end of a meeting one time and a guy came up to me a bit teary. He said, I've got so much freedom today. He said, I've got so much freedom. I said, how? What, what's God done? He said, well, all my life I've had this problem with the fact that I've got such huge feet. And I've been really embarrassed and paranoid about it, and, and um, God's just broken through. I said, well, what did he do today? Um, what, what happened? He said, well, I looked at your feet, and I realized how huge they are, and I realized he's got massive feet, and, and he's, got, he's got massive feet, and he is walking in, you know, he's doing what God's called him to do, therefore I can do it with my massive feet. Have you ever had a moment where you say one thing and think another? <laughs> I said, bless you, brother, that is so good. And on the inside, I was like, what is wrong with you? How, how can you put your, I've got size 11s, they're not that big. How can you 
wrap this up in such spiritual language and hurt me, but get away with it. And I have to say, bless you, brother, on your way. On your way, go. Walking away thinking, I've got cyber. I went back home. Caroline, have I got big feet? No. <laughs> Made me insecure about my feet. I'm not insecure about my feet. Now suddenly I am. <laughs> I'm not, actually, I'm not. You'd have to come and say, I've never thought about your feet. I was wearing these shoes, actually, and apparently they do make my feet look big. But anyway, some Christians say some nutty, nutty stuff, and they wrap it up. They start in this place of saying this crazy, crazy stuff. You know, there's, there's some mumbo-jumbo when people are in trial. Sometimes people will come to you, and fortunately no one did it in this season for us, but they'll say things like, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Ever had anyone say that to you? When you're in a trial, that is the last thing you want to hear. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Now, there are some things that are mysterious, but God is not mysteriously bad. He is mysteriously good, if anything. And so when you say he works in mysterious ways, it's not actually helping me right now. But you don't say that, do you? So thank you. Thank you for your concern. Thank you. Uh, Tim Hawkins does the brilliant thing. He says, you know, when people pray for you and they say, I'm praying for a hedge of protection around you. You, you ever heard something? <laughs> I'm praying for a hedge of protection. He's like, whenever they, someone prays that, he's like, I don't need a hedge. <laughs> what good is a hedge? Like the enemy's going to come up and say, how scary, it's a hedge. He's just going to get his clippers and go right through. Give me a concrete wall for crying out loud. Give me razor wire. Give me snipers and dogs. I don't want a hedge. <laughs> But we use this spiritual language, don't we, to wrap something up. But really, it's showing that we're starting in the wrong place. You know, very often when we're in a mess, when disaster strikes, what do we think? We, we, we think, what shall I do? And I want to, one of the things that I've realized in this season is it's not so much about what should I do, but what should I think? It's not so much about what should I do, but what should I think. You see, the disciples go wrong because what happens is they start their thinking in the wrong place. They start their thinking in the wrong place. They approach this whole situation in the wrong way because their thinking is starting from the wrong place. So, much, so often the pressure is, ah, I've got a mess, what shall I do? And there is things that you need to do, but fundamentally, the more important question is this, what shall I think? You see, I heard the story of the, you've heard it before, I'm sure, of the, the city boy who's out in the country and he's totally lost, looking to get back to London, goes, approaches the farmer and says, I want to go to, I want to, go to London, how do I get to London? And the farmer says, well, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> And it's like that, isn't it? You want to go somewhere, but you think, I, I don't want to start from here, but you're in a mess, and sometimes you just cannot control where you start from on the outside. But what you can control is where you start from on the inside. You can control what you, where you start from on the inside. And the disciples get it wrong because they start with the wrong assumptions and they start with the wrong question. You know, very often... When we're in a mess, the very, I don't know if you are in this, ever tempted to do this, but very often in the past, my temptation was to start with, why? Why, God, would you allow this to happen to me, of all people? I mean, them I could understand, but me? <laughs> why? Any ever started with why? Sometimes we start with, with blame. 
Who's to blame? That's how thinking goes. Anyone start? That's where you're thinking. Who's to blame? I remember one time I was outside and I, I whacked my thumb with a hammer. And uh, I, I, I consciously remember looking around to think, was, is there anyone who can hear me? And then I took the hammer and I said, I hate you. <laughs> and I hit the ground, the concrete with the hammer. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Anyone ever feel like that in the situation? <laughs> Who's to blame? Let me hit someone. Because as if that makes it feel better. And the concrete was a bit cracked and then I had another problem. <laughs> and the hammer was like, come on, give me more. <laughs> Who's to blame? Who's to blame? We start in that place. Sometimes we start with fear. We start with, we start with this just panic. A, a friend of mine was moving his whole family to another country. And he, he went to the airport and uh, he went to, to Gatwick and he went to check his, he's got his, all his kids, five, they shipped a load of stuff, five suitcases. And he was at Gatwick and, uh, and the, he gave his tickets in and the, the, the lady behind the desk looked up at him and said, did you realize your plane leaves from Heathrow? And he says, what shall I do? And she said, run. <laughs> run. And that sometimes is our response, isn't it? It's fear. We just, I'm in this mess. I want to run. I want to run from this situation. And we sometimes start from that. Sometimes we start from self-pity. Why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Sometimes we start with hopelessness. My mum came down the stairs one time and I was at the bottom of the stairs crying, crying, weeping my poor, my poor heart out. And she said, Simon, what's wrong? I said, I'm never going to pass my O-levels, which was the GCSE equivalent in the day, 16. I'm never going to pass my O-levels. She said, Simon, why? What, what, what are you thinking? Said, I've looked at my brother's papers and I just can't do a single question. I'm never going to pass. She said, Simon, he's 16. You're seven. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I think I can, you think I can do it in seven years, nine years time? But that's so often how we are, isn't it? We, we, we see the mess and we just see hopelessness. We see no way forward, no way out of this situation. We look at the worst scenario. It just looks so hopeless to us. Sometimes we start with, where did I go wrong? Anyone tempted to start with that? Just me again. Oh, thanks, for, thanks for backing me up. Where did I go wrong? You go through everything, every mess, and you're thinking, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? Now, sometimes that is a good, good question to ask. But I would say what I've learned, one of the things I've learned is when, you, when you're facing a mess, you have to start your thinking in the right place. You have to start your thinking in the right place. Place. Every action, we talked about this, every action comes from the thoughts that precede it. So your actions now, when you're in a mess, are more important than any other time. And if your actions will come from the, think, the thinking that precedes it, you've got to get your thinking straight. You've got to get your thinking straight. Someone once said, if you want something different, you must do something different. And I would twist that slightly and say, if you want something different, you must think something different. If you want to respond differently this time round than in other situations, you've got to think something differently. What should be our starting point? You know, 
uh, over this season, one of the toughest seasons of our lives, I realized God spoke to me so clearly that this is going to be key. Our thinking was going to be key. So one uh, night, I, I, I realized that, that, that fear, frustration, blaming myself, uh, all this stuff was seeking to crowd into my soul. And so I wrote down in my journal, I am going to choose the thoughts I think from now on. Here's eight things that I'm going to think. Number one, resistance is as key to spiritual muscular growth as it is to physical muscular growth. There is resistance in my life right now, and I'm going to use it to help me grow. Number two, God says I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to think about that, th- that thought. Number three, he is a good father. Number four, Psalm 116 says, relax and rest. God has showered you with blessings. Soul, you've been rescued for death. I, you've been rescued from tears. And you, foot, were kept from stumbling. I'm going to think about this psalm. Psalm uh, number five, I'm a whole man fighting off sickness, not a sick man trying to get well. Number six, when God asks you to wait, he always has a purpose. Even when the Father seems to be doing nothing, he is doing something. Jesus said, my Father is always working. I'm going to think of that, about these things. Number seven, life in the Spirit is not about avoiding tough situations. It is profiting from tough situations. Number eight, I'm going to come out of this with an upgrade. I wrote those thoughts down one night and thought, I'm going to train my mind to think like this. Because this is the type of thinking that's going to produce the right actions. Actions that will help me move out of this place. There's this story in, in Chronicles in the Old Testament about Jehoshaphat, which is such a great name. If I had any more children, I would definitely use it. And, and um, Jehoshaphat was faced with three armies. And it's a great story in 2 Chronicles uh, 20. I haven't got time to read the whole thing, but I just want you to read one little snippet of it. Because he's faced with three armies, and this is the response. After this, three armies came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told him, a great multitude is coming against you. Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Oh, our God, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that line. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Replace the starting point with Jesus. I'm in a mess but my eyes are on you. We've got to learn, and I'm not saying this is easy, and I'm not saying I'm there, because sometimes the mess just hits you, and you were expecting a normal day. And anyone had that? I was looking forward to a normal day, and now it's a mess. So it's a training ground, isn't it, for our souls to think, stop, stop. Before my mind goes off in a million directions, before even I think, what am I going to do? I'm going to think, Jesus, this is a mess. My eyes are on you. I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. has to be our starting point. Psalm 27, David, who faced many messes in his life, wrote this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. What's he doing? He's defining his starting points. 
I've got armies, I've got whatever, I've got mess. I am going to define, I can't define what's around me. Sometimes it just happens, but what I can do is I can define what's within me. I can't say where I'm going to start on the outside, but I can say where I'm going to start on the inside, and I'm starting right here. I'm going to renew my mind and fix my eyes on Jesus right now. It's got to be where we go. And so in this story, the disciples start in the wrong place. They have these assumptions that the sickness on this man must be because of him or his parents. And, that, and their assumptions box in their answer. It's one or two choices. But very often when we, when we think the answer is one or two choices, have you ever noticed it's often a third thing? <laughs> it's often a thing that we haven't thought of. Because they, their assumptions, their thinking is wrong, they come up with the wrong options to select an answer from. And so Jesus doesn't pick any of their answers. He says this. He says... It's, that, it's neither of those things, but that the works of God might be displayed, manifested in him. It's not either of those things, he says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Notice, there was an immediate reason that that man was born blind. Jesus knows everything. He was not limited to the technical knowledge of his day. There were potentially numerous reasons. It wasn't a spiritual reason. It could have been numerous things. Maybe his mum got an infection while she was carrying him. Maybe the eyes just never developed at all. Maybe he got some disease very quickly after he was born. There are a number of different reasons that Jesus, he probably knew what caused this man to be blind. But notice what he says. He doesn't focus on that immediate reason. What he says is this, that the works of God might be manifested in him. Why? Think about it. Why? Why not give the reason? If he knows the reason, why not give the reason? It has to be this. The reason is important, but the outcome is more important. The reason is important, but the outcome, the destination, is more important. There is something more important. And what does Jesus say is more important? We've got a mess. What the most important thing is. Yes, the reason, there are reasons, and sometimes it's helpful to know the reasons, but the most important thing is what? What's my good father going to do about it? And so often we're in the situation where we're so focused on, I've got to know the reason, I've got to know the reason, I've got to know the reason, and sometimes it's helpful to know the reason. But I tell you what, what I've realized is it's less helpful to know the reason than it is to know the destination. (laughs) We've got to learn to focus not so much on the reason, but on the destination. And this word that Jesus used, uh, that John records, this word displayed or manifested, is rich with meaning. He uses it in John 2. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John 17, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of this world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Manifested, this word displayed that John says that Jesus said is a rich theological word and it means he uses it almost every time he uses it in the context of something that is hidden is going to display God's glory. (laughs) Something that is hidden is going to display the glory of God. Something unseen is going to become seen. And he says, because of this man's situation, I'm not giving you the immediate reason, but I'm telling you this, 
The immediate reason you don't know, but what you can know is the destination of this thing, that God is going to display his glory in it. I tell you what, when you approach your trials like that, it changes everything. Because <laughs> you may know the reason or you may not know the reason, but what you can be confident of is you know the destination. You know where this thing is going. I'm going to see the glory of God. I'm going to see his goodness through this thing. I am going to see his goodness through this thing. Graham Cook says this, I want to learn to see all of life through the eyes of God's goodness. When you're in a mess, start your thinking from this place. I am going to see God's goodness through this, this mess. I am going to see his goodness. I don't know the reason, but I do know the outcome. The earth will be filled with the glory, the goodness of God as the waters cover the sea. I don't know, I'm in a mess. This is a mess. I don't know the reason, but I do know the outcome. I do know the finish line. I do know where this is going. At the end, in Psalm 27, David, that psalm that we read, he says this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We start our thinking straight and we focus on the finish. We focus on where this is going to go. We focus on the inevitable income outcome of this thing. And we wait. Now, put yourself in this situation. Just cl close your eyes for a moment. Put yourself in this scene, okay? You've got the blind man, you've got the disciples, you've got Jesus. And it says that, that Jesus spits in the dirt. Now, in those days, spit was an unclean thing. So he spits in the dirt and he makes mud with the spit and the dirt. And then he takes that and he sticks it in the blind man's eyes. He sticks this mud in the blind man's eyes and he tells the blind man to go and wash. Now notice where your, hat, your eyes, your attention was drawn in that story. Where, where was the, most of your attention? Spit and mud, but where was the spit and mud? Where was it before it was in the eyes? Where was it between the point that it was in the ground and it was in the man's eyes? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was harder work than I thought it was going to be. It was in the hands of Jesus. Spit and mud are things which are unclean and dirty. And yet, in the hands of Jesus, they give sight to a blind man. There's this story at the end of the Gospels where Thomas is the only disciple who has not seen the risen Christ. They've all seen him and they're all talking about it. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe this unless I put my hands in his hands and put my fingers in his sides. A few days later, Thomas is there and Jesus appears in the room. And he says to Thomas this, Eight days later, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with him. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. He was one of the first disciples to get the revelation that Christ was God, that Jesus was God in human form. Why? Because he saw the hands. And he saw what was once scarred and had nails go through it, now glorified. I tell you what, when we learn to take our trial and give it into the hands of Jesus, we will see treasure come out of every trial. When we learn to wait, wait is not necessarily a passive thing. There may be things that we need to do. But when we learn to wait in the sense that we are committing this situation into the hands of Christ, we can, anyone who can turn a crucifixion into glory can make treasure out of any trial. <laughs> anyone who can turn a crucifixion into glory can make a treasure out of any trial when it's in his hands. When it's in his hands. When it's in the hands of Jesus, every t- trial turns into a treasure. And we've got to learn to be those who walk with the reality that Jesus can do the miraculous with any trial. When it's in his hands. I mean, he is perfect goodness. He is perfect love. He is perfect joy. He is perfect peace. He is perfect kindness. He is perfect everything. And so when the perfect touches the imperfect, the imperfect gets transformed and a cross becomes a glory and mud. He was a blind man. Putting our trials into the hands of Christ and wait. Wait. Now, it doesn't mean so we don't do stuff, because sometimes there's stuff that has to be done. Waiting is an internal posture. Waiting is a positioning. It's a saying, I am waiting to see what Jesus will do. Jesus, I fix my eyes on you. I don't know what to do, but I fix my eyes on you. I give you this trial, and now I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait to see what you will do out of this place. You are perfect everything. I was talking with the, uh, my taxi driver the other day, he was a Muslim, and, and he was saying, just tell me about Jesus, tell me about Jesus. So we're talking about church and what I did and whatever. Tell me, tell me about Jesus. Do you really believe that he was a prophet who had a message from God? I said, he said, like Muhammad, like Moses. I said, the, I said, the difference is this. I said, Moses and Muhammad were men who claimed to have a message from God and who, point, who claimed to be pointing to a truth. I said, Jesus was totally different. He didn't claim to be pointing to a truth. He claimed to be the truth. (laughs) He didn't claim to be pointing to the light. He claimed to be the light. He didn't claim to be pointing to the way. He claimed to be the way. He is the reason that we worship. He is the reason, not just because he brought a message of truth, but because he is the truth. He is perfect everything. He is amazing. And and I went on and on and on. declaring the goodness of God to this guy who had no concept of who Jesus was and thought he was just a prophet is what we are about. (laughs) Presenting the situations of life into their hands. 
He is perfect and he touches everything. Remember the old hymn, some of you remember it. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Let the weak, those with mess, let the poor, those with mess say, I am strong. I am rich because of what he has done and who he is. Feel free to get happy at any point. Psalm 27 finishes with this, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. We start, where do you think we're going to start? We've got to start less with what I'm going to do and more with what I'm going to think. We've got to finish with don't focus on the reason. Focus more on the destination and then we wait because in the hands of Jesus every trial turns into a treasure. I, I had a an email over the summer and it went like this I was at prayer and fasting in 2014 I think, I think that Simon was leading the meeting at that time a lady in our church was suffering with cervical cancer she was in her early 30s as three children from 5 up to 15 years the cancer was found in the early part of 2014 and despite treatment spread over her whole entire body her hips were scanned in August when she asked why only her hips were scanned the medical team replied that the cancer was in her hips it was everywhere she was then given the option to either continue the treatment that was making her desperately unwell but would probably extend her life until Christmas or to end the treatment and have a relatively normal month over the summer holidays before she died she'd been preparing the children making remembrance books and memory boxes we'd been praying for her as a church continually over this period the cancer had not responded at prayer and fasting i approached simon and asked him to pray for us for breakthrough against cancer he laid his hands on me and asked for breakthrough we returned home and a few weeks later the lady called my wife said she'd been to an oncologist again who'd scanned her to find that the cancer had completely disappeared from her entire body they could find no trace of it anywhere in the hands of jesus every trial becomes a treasure I had a call from a friend a number of years ago, and he said, my friend is dying of cancer. So I went, he said, will you go and see him? And God had spoken to me about seeing cancer healed, so I said, I'll go and, I'll go and see him. I didn't know this guy, it was, the first meeting was awkward, he was in the hospital, he was in his bed, I said, we'll call him John, I said, John, you don't know me, I don't know you, but we know so-and-so, we both know him, and he said, would you come, would I come and pray for you? Are you open for praise? said, Simon, I'm an atheist, but I'm desperate. There's nothing else that's worked. I'm dying. Yes, pray for me. So I prayed with him. And at the end, we got to talk about Jesus. And he said, Simon, it's just it's so good for you, but it's just not for me. And I prayed with him a number of times over those following months. I prayed with him. And at the end of it, we would always pray. And I'd say, look, I've never seen Cancer Hill before, but I, w- I would love to pray for you. And he said, you just keep going. I'll take as much as I can get. I'm desperate. He said, nothing else has worked. Just keep going. And at the end, of it, we would talk about Jesus. And we'd talk about how I became a Christian, how I once was an atheist. At the end of it, he would always say, Simon... It's, it's great for you, but it's just not for me. And then one day his wife phoned me. And she phoned and she said, um, Simon, you need to come and see John because I don't think he's got long to go. So I, 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 f- I went um, over to see him and he was looking really, I mean, the worst I'd seen him, so, so gaunt and, and just terrible. And so I prayed for him again. And then I told him about Jesus. And, I, and at the end he said, Simon, I think it's for me. And I said, okay, do you know what you've got to do? He said, I know I've got to confess my sin. So I said, okay, do it. Now, some people don't like deathbed confessions because they think, oh, how do you know that he's just not doing it as like insurance? I'll tell you what, this was the most profound repentance prayer I have ever heard in my life from anyone. I mean, he confessed 
everything, everything, stuff that he'd never told anyone before. He was confessing, he was confessing, he was confessing. The next day, his wife phoned me, she said, what on earth did you do to him last night? I said, why? She said, such peace has come into his heart. It's unbelievable. I've never seen him like it right the way through the whole thing. Such peace has come into his life. The next day he died. I tell you what, he got a massive shock after he died because he knew nothing. He had never read a Bible. He'd never opened a Bible. He'd never been to church or school. He knew nothing. And he opened his eyes and he saw Jesus who had saved him right at the last moment of his life. In the hands of Jesus, every trial becomes a treasure. I don't know the reasons, but I do know the destination. I do know the outcome that Christ transforms mess into treasure wherever he goes because he is so perfect. He is perfect everything. We've got to learn to live in the mess and learn to get our thinking right and learn to focus on the end and learn to wait and be those people. Imagine if we had a whole community who went wherever we go into all the mess around, not just our own mess, but all the mess around, and we brought life wherever we go because of where our thinking and our focus were. Amen.